Good evening. It's good to see everyone out here tonight. We are continuing our series through the uh, pastoral epistles. That's First and Second Timothy and Titus. We are in Titus two, chapter two tonight. So if you are not familiar, you haven't been consistent, or maybe you just need to remember, this letter is written by Paul to Titus. Uh, Titus served with Paul uh, on a missionary journey to the island of Crete. He was also in Corinth for a time, but currently Titus is in the island of Crete, and Paul is writing to encourage uh, this young pastor and how to lead the church that is there, how to establish elders. That's something that we uh, covered in chapter one. That is the chief aim of Paul writing. Uh, he says he left Titus in Crete uh, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. Uh, so tonight we will be looking at Titus 2, and uh, we're going to read through that now, and then I'll pray. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior." Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for this uh, letter that guides us as we uh, consider how we are to operate in light of the gospel, how we are to live as believers. And I just ask uh, that you would bless the teaching of your word, that you would uh, guide the word coming from me, Lord, that it would be your spirit speaking, um, and that we would leave here uh, understanding how to better serve you and to love and serve those who are around us. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so as I, I kind of went over already, Titus uh, is over the church in Crete. He's to be establishing order, and Paul has trusted him with this important task. Um, so in verse 1, it says, but as for you, so when we look at this, we need to consider what is the contrast. What If he's saying, but as for you, that means he's comparing Titus and the way Titus is supposed to be handling himself to something else. So that's, that's what Doug talked about last week, um, comparing uh, the false teachers to Titus. Uh, the false teachers in ver verses 10 through 16, uh, Paul says... Uh, they are empty talkers, deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. Uh, 
Rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. And then he says, these false teachers profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So that's a pretty... Uh, pretty in guilty verdict of what's going on with these people. They're professing to know Christ. They're professing to teach what the gospel uh, would say, and yet their teaching is showing that they are not in Christ, that they are living for selfish gain. They are teaching things that are outside of the gospel. Um, so Paul says, but Titus, you do this, you do this separately, you do this differently, but as for you, and then he tells them to teach what accords with sound doctrine? Now, he's already established that when, when elders or Titus are supposed to be teaching, and this is in verse 9, he, he, in, uh, instructing him about elders, he says, an elder must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught, so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So he's already established Sound doctrine is to be taught. And the word sound here is uh, really translated more healthy. Healthy doctrine. But Paul's not telling Titus to teach healthy doctrine here. He's telling him to teach what accords with healthy doctrine. And what accords with healthy doctrine is our response, our Christian lifestyle. So then Paul's going to go through and he lays out what does that look like in the life of an older man, an older woman, a younger man, and a younger woman? Now, I know all of you would not consider yourselves to be older men and women. I have an aunt who is still celebrating her 35th birthday. <laughs> um, so there's very much in us that doesn't want to be labeled this way, and yet these are uh, qualities that are to be admirable. And as we age, these are things that we should be looking to grow in. Um, and also, as we go through these, these are not just to be taken for granted or assumed that this will happen as we age. These are things that are to be taught by Titus to the believers. This is to be the response of a devout Christian to sound doctrine. As we hear the preaching of God's word, as we hear the gospel uh, being preached from the pulpit and being taught in small groups, our response is to be like this. So he says, older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Um, so when he looks at older men, he tells us they need to have maturity and wisdom that their years should give them. An older man, we automatically just assume of this honorable man who's lived his life well, but that is not always the case. Uh, Sober-minded, when he calls them to be sober-minded, they are to be in control of their own thoughts. They are to be controlled by nothing but the Holy Spirit. They are not to be given over, not just to drunkenness, but to any other passions. That's the idea behind sober-minded. They are not led from one passion to another. They are in control. They are to be sound in faith, uh, in love, 
and in steadfastness. These are men who have faithfully trusted God through many years. Their life is marked by dependence on Christ. Their life is marked by um, following Christ through tribulation and trial, through death, through suffering, through raising children, through marriage, through possibly widowship. Um, that is the mark of these older men. Uh, and I'm just going to back up just a second. So one thing that I want to point out is not just that Titus is to be teaching differently than these leaders, but this is for all of us. Um, Titus and all of us are to be wholly different from the culture that is around us. That's, that's the struggle here, that there's these new believers, this church that's being established, and there's a tension to just continue to conform to what the culture in Crete has for them. Um, and Paul is telling them, no, you are to be different. You are to look different from the world around you. Uh, we are told that we are um, sojourners in this world. We are aliens and sojourners in this world. Our lives are to be markedly different. First uh, Peter 2, 11 through 12 tells us, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So as we go through these, there's, a, there's supposed to be a marked difference between a believer and those who are around us. And the pressure from the world is intense, especially nowadays, especially with social media and the rampage of the news cycle telling us this is what you ought to be, this is what is success, this is what um, is to be desired, and we are to fight against that. Um, I find it very interesting as we look at this, these qualities of older men, there's a couple things that are missing that a lot of us would just assume. Successfulness. There's no mention of an older man being a successful man, not that God has blessed him, that he has great, um, a large family, he's not supposed to necessarily even have wealth, the qualities here are of a man who has been steadfast in his faith towards God, and there's a seriousness about his faith. Uh, he doesn't laugh at the things that he used to laugh at as a younger man. He doesn't laugh at the things that the world would say, oh, that's, well, just laugh it off, it's crude humor. That's not that mark of that man anymore. He is um, not somber, though. I think you can read through this, and you get this I, picture of, you know, the way you would see like Pharisees in a Bible version of the gospel where they're just, you know, they're just stone cold and, you know, somber and serious and not at all what anyone wants to be like. You know, we read self-controlled, sober-minded, dignified, and it just sounds stoic. But that's not the case. We are to be, an older man is joyful. He's full of love. Um, Older men, sometimes we can think of them as being like crusty and hard and impatient. That is not the case with the man who follows God. Um, he is marked with love and steadfastness. He has faithfully followed God through difficulties. Um, and as we go through this, you'll see uh, self-control is marked for each one of these groups. So older men, older women, younger women, and young men. Self-control is a huge emphasis here 
Uh, and it's that idea of self-controlled is not like we're closed fists, we're just clenching, we're just, no, I'm not going to do that. Self-control is a fruit of the Spirit. As we follow Christ, there is a desire in us to live in a way that says no to our passions and yes to God, not, um, not in a way that is self-denial. Uh, it may feel like that at times, but that's not really the goal. Self-control is an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. is a fruit of the Spirit. Um, and it seems like this was a big issue in Crete, this idea of self-control, because he addresses it to all four groups. Um, he also links everyone together. Every time he transitions from older men to older women and then from uh, the younger women to the younger men, he says, likewise. So there's this ongoing idea as he's laying out these qualities that these are things that are evident in all believers. Now, some of these are more specific because there are different stages of life where we have different struggles and we have different needs and that are more common at certain stages of life. So Paul addresses this, but by linking them together and saying likewise, there is ongoing um, connectivity to all of these issues. Uh, so women, older women, that's nobody here, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children. I'm just going to stop there, even though that's not the end of the sentence. Excuse me. Um, so the older woman, like the older man, is to be dignified to have a life that is marked by self-control. They are not slaves to much wine. Um, and this, the word slave there is literally slave, like they are dependent on it, it is, uh, controls them. They are out of control if you are a slave to much wine. Uh, and this idea of not slanderers, they are not allowing the words of their mouth to tear others down. They are not gossips, they are not busybodies. Um, they are not a mouthpiece for the devil to tear others down. Reverence in behavior has this idea, uh, a kind of like dignified, like the older man, um, that there's this sense of like almost um, like a priestess, uh, that there's just this calm stateliness about her, She's not somber, still joyful like the older man is supposed to be. Uh, and we read in Timothy, I think it's First Timothy, where they talk about not adorning your head with gold and, and braided hair, that this reverent behavior is not just the way she conducts herself, but also the way that she dresses. She is not a woman who desires much attention. She's not seeking to look like she's 20. Uh, you know, and that's a big struggle in our culture right now. Everyone is obsessed with looking younger and um, that is not this woman. She's not concerned about her outward appearance in worldly matters. She's concerned about honoring the Lord with her life. So, uh, and she is to be an example to younger women. Older women are to teach what is good and so train the young woman. And then it goes through the many qualities. Um, so I do want to take some time and talk about discipleship. Uh, I think this is one of those things that we can just assume is a pastoral responsibility. 
this training of younger people, the church desperately, desperately needs older men and women to be effective disciples of the next generation. It is not an option. It's not something that we say, well, they're going to handle it. You know, Kyle has his, his men's study. Susan Huber has her women's study. So we're all good. That's, that is not the, the aim here. When it talks about older women teaching what is good and training the younger women, this also does apply likewise back to the older men. This is not just older women, it's both. Um, and it's not in an official capacity. This is not a deacon or deaconess. This is not an elder. Uh, these are just what is coming out in a natural relational way. Uh, so when it talks about teaching what is good and training, this training is this idea of walking alongside of somebody and instructing them on how to do this. Um, and this is something that we'll see all through Scripture, that the responsibility to train others, to disciple others, and what does it look like to live a godly life does not just fall on preaching on a Sunday or teaching on a Wednesday night. It falls to each one of us to be effectively involved in the lives of those who are around us. Specifically, in this passage, older men and women are to be involved in younger men and women's lives, teaching them and instructing them. Um, Okay, so uh, I'm going to go through Ephesians 4, 11 through 16 uh, to kind of talk about this idea. And this is, again, this is Paul writing. And he gave the apostles the prophet, and the he is God. And God, he, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints. Now, the saints is just every believer. Anyone who is faithfully following Christ is a saint. That's what that means. It's not in the way, idea of a Catholic sainthood where they're, you know, idolized. It's just a regular believer. So shepherds and teachers are to equip the saints, to train, to fill up what is lacking in the saints for the work of ministry or service, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity, the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the ways and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, and that's every believer from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love we all need one another to build up the body in love it is not only on the pastors it starts there it starts with the outpouring of the doctrine of god the the gospel being preached faithfully the teaching of Jesus being proclaimed. But that is not where it stops. It is not on the shoulders of the pastors to train all of us up into godliness. That is a group effort. We are to train each other. We are to minister to one another, to bring us up to mature manner. We are to speak the truth in love. 
uh, when Jesus sends out his disciples on, as he's ascending into heaven. He says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. And he tells them to do two things as he makes disciples. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So those are the two things that believers are to be doing. We are to be proclaiming the gospel and baptizing, that's you know, conversion, and then discipling. We are to teach what Jesus has taught us about how to live in this world. It is not just enough to know the gospel. The gospel is to transform our lives. And as it transforms our lives, we are to pour that into other people's lives and help them along the way. Doesn't mean that we're going to have every answer. Doesn't mean that as we disciple other people that they're going to do everything we want them to do. And many times there will be a lot of tension. Um, but we are to pour into other people's lives. We are not to be uh, growing in Christ for our own sake. And that's it. We are to grow in Christ. We are to grow in dependence and maturity in Christ so that we might encourage and build up others. Hebrews 3.13 says, But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Hebrews 10.24-25 Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. And this is a favorite line of all men, from Proverbs 27, iron sharpens iron, and one man sharpens another. There is a way in which the Holy Spirit works mightily through relationship in believers. The teaching of God's word is without failure. There's nothing that is needed to build that up anymore, and yet God allows us to be involved in the sanctification, the building up, the, the righteous the, the growing in righteousness of other believers. And it is critical for us to do that. Um, and I think this is another thing that goes in the face of our culture today. Uh, culture today would tell older men and women, you've done your time, you've worked, put your feet up, enjoy it, play pickleball. Nothing wrong with pickleball. <laughs> and there's a lot of pickleball fans in this room. It's the mindset, though, that... You've done your time, you've raised your kids, you've, you've worked your work, now it's time to kick back and relax. And God, Paul and God says, no, you're, you're not done yet. You still have work to do. The next generation is coming, and how are you going to invest in them? The church desperately, and I mean really desperately, needs older men and women. I look at, uh, we were having an interesting conversation recently uh, in our home fellowship group about parenting. And as a millennial, I feel like I can say this, millennials are terrible parents, by and large. As a group, we are not very good. There's, there's many parents where they just, they have no desire to instruct their children. They have no desire to discipline their children. And it's easy for me to say that and kind of cast judgment on the world around us because they're lost. They don't know any better. And yet at the same time, even in the church, how are we to know? How is, how is a young man or young woman to know what does, how do I live in this situation? And we're, we're going to get through some of this with the younger women here, but there's a, a myriad of 
ways in which discipleship can impact the way that we live. There are so many questions about how do I raise my children? How do I faithfully serve and follow God in singleness? How do I love difficult people? How do I love my wife? How do I love my husband? How do I lay down my life for them? How do I disciple my children? There are millions of ways in which these truths that we know that we need to do, and yet we can say, well, but how? Someone help me. Um, so that is, that is something that the older men and women need to be involved in. And that is not necessarily older men and women, doesn't mean 80s and older. We're not just talking about, you know, uh, Susan and uh, Jean, you know. <laughs> Otherwise, they'd have a, a long list of people that they need to be discipling. Generally, it's considered like 50 to 60 and older. Um, but even in certain scenarios, as a 36-year-old man, I'm the older man, and I need to be this thing to other people. I need to be discipling. Um, I, I can tell you, I know in my life as a high school student, now my dad was a youth pastor, and so I was definitely discipled by my father and my mother. They did train me in the Word. And yet, as a high school student, um, I had a couple of men who really invested in my life. Uh, weekly, talking to me, sometimes getting together face-to-face, -face, sometimes texting me or calling me, but I learned what it meant to be able to talk to other people about my struggles, to be able to confess to them, not as someone that's like a priest where I'm just trying to unload it, but to be able to say, this is a struggle I have, will you help me? How can you, can you help me and pray for me? Can, can you give me any guidance and how do I deal with this? It was very reassuring to me as a young man to, so, to see Okay, so my parents aren't just Looney Tunes and, and crazy for Jesus. This isn't like, you know, craziness. There's, there's other people who I take seriously, who I have respect for and, and admire, who are building up the same things to me, who are proclaiming, no, this is, this is true. God has changed my life. This is how, and this is how I've seen him do that, and I want to see that in you. Um, so... Back to the passage. All right. So older women are to train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands. Now, it seems odd that they would say to love their husbands and children, because it seems like we would just say, well, of course, every woman loves her husband and loves her children. That's not necessarily the case. Um, especially in this time, I, I read one commentator, and I cannot remember his name. He pointed out, and I just thought this was very profound. At this time, most marriages were not, well, I, I married the person I love, I chose. These are arranged marriages. Um, and yet they're told, love this person. Um, and I think this also goes in the face of what our culture esteems as love today. Love is not passion between two people. It's not a stirring of butterflies in your stomach. It's not a desire to be next to someone at all times. Love is sacrificially desiring to see, to serve God despite difficulties, to love people when it's hard, to serve them, to do what is best for them, um, and not just to consider our own needs. Love today, as we see it in our culture, is very self-serving. Oh, they make me feel this way, and I feel great, and then when that feeling's gone, well, I don't, I don't love them anymore. They don't love me. I don't, 
It's, that's not love. Love is a commitment to serve others above ourselves. Um, so that's what this means. Loving their husbands and children is seeking the best for her husband, seeking the best for her children. Uh, older women are to help train young women to be self-controlled, just like the older woman and the older man. Uh, there is supposed to be a check on the desires of their heart. They are to be pure. Um, we are to think about only things that are honoring to the Lord. Philippians 4.8 says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Um, so this purity and self-control plays out in a, a ton of different ways. What do we allow ourselves to see? What do we allow ourselves to watch? What do we allow ourselves to have conversations that we have? Uh, it's not just simply talking about sexuality. It is talking about don't be defiled by the things of this world. Don't allow things to corrupt your thinking. Think about the things that are excellent, as it said in Philippians. All right, and then working at home. Now, this, this is a fun one. All right, um, so it would be really easy to look at this and say, well, obviously, women are not supposed to go get jobs. They have to be stay-at-home mothers, um, and yet that's not what this is saying. This, that's not the thrust here. Um, John Stott said this, it would not be legitimate to base on this word either a stay-at-home stereotype for all women or a prohibition of wives being also professional women. What is rather affirmed is that if a woman accepts the vocation of marriage and has a husband and children, she will love them and not neglect them. What Paul is opposing is not a wife's pursuit of a profession, but the habit of being idle and going about from house to house. So this idea of working at home does not mean she has to be at home, cooking, baking, whatever. The idea here is that she is not lazy. She is not idle. She is diligent. The Proverbs 31 woman, um, her heart was first and foremost for her home. This is describing the, the Proverbs 31st woman. Um, but how did she do that? How did she put her house first? She worked outside of it. She traded. She engaged in commerce. She brought in income for their home um, to be able to provide for the home. So it's not what, how is that being done? It's what is the heart? Um, whether you work, whether your work brings in a paycheck or not, the question to be asked is, is this decision glorifying to God and making his name great? Or am I pursuing my own self-fulfillment and selfish amb ambition apart from him? So working at home is this idea of not idleness, not neglecting the home, not neglecting the husband and the children or whatever else needs to be in terms of establishing the home for Christ. Um, it is not a prohibition against women working. It is not a prohibition against uh, a lot of different things. Uh, and there's a lot of ways that this will play out. There's a million different ways in which uh, single moms, how are they supposed to fulfill this? They have to go out and work. Um, so that's not what this is talking about. It is talking about the idea of putting your family and your home first, that our heart is to serve that. Um, the younger woman and all of us are to be kind. It's easy to think that that would just be assumed. 
that there's this kindness. Oh, moms is kind. A young woman should be kind. But it is something that needs to be instilled and taught in them from the older women. Um, and submissive to their own husbands. Uh, we've, our church has spent a good amount of time talking about this. Submission here is hugely frowned on. It looks to the world outside like we were saying women are lesser, men are in control, they just need to be obedient and step in line. And that is not um, what is shown here. I, I really appreciated uh, Pastor Eric's example of this months and months ago, I think now, from, I think from Ephesians, um, where it talks about the husband laying down his life for the wife. Uh, and the idea is a husband's desire is to always be putting his wife's needs first. So this idea of submission um, should come easily. That uh, Eric described it this way, that uh, he and Jennifer always make decisions together. Correct me if I'm wrong, Eric. Um, they seek to always be making decisions together. Um, not that Eric is laying down the law and, and Jennifer has to just step in line, but at every decision that needs to be made, they try to make decisions together and come to a decision unanimously. If they can't, they either put it off and wait, or if a decision has to be made, then Eric as the leader of the family, it has to make a decision. So if they can't agree, and Jennifer, but a decision has to be made, then that is a time when there needs to be that submission. Um, and in a godly relationship, this submission is always done with the idea of uh, seeking what is best for the family or the wife. A husband who is insisting on something is doing it to honor God and to honor his wife. Um, there's been very few examples of where this has happened in my personal life. I know one was uh, my wife does not like speaking in group settings, so she really didn't want to go to a home fellowship group. I said, no, we're going to go to a home fellowship group because I think it'll be really good for us. Um, one of the very few times that that's ever had to happen, and I did that because I felt it was best for her and for our family in a way that is honoring to the Lord. Um, so this is not husbands getting their way at every turn. This is not husbands domineering over wives. Um, in a godly context, it should look very different. And yet, there are women who are told they need to submit to their husbands who are not godly, who are evil. Um, Paul talks about it in Corinthians, that these women are to submit to their husbands as unto the Lord, because the Lord may save them through this, even if their husbands are not believers. And that's a, that's a hard thing, but it's all of this, and I love this emphasis here. Paul talks about this now. He says, submissive to their own husbands. So all of these attributes come to this head front, that the word of God may not be reviled. When we humbly submit to what God has for our lives, when we allow sound doctrine, healthy teaching of the scriptures to impact our life, it is honoring to the Lord. Um, it allows God's word to be looked at by the world and it is not put to shame. So women who are doing these things, and the world will look at a lot of the things on this list and say, this is not admirable. These are not qualities that people should be attributing or aspiring to. And yet, Paul is saying, if you do these things, if you are humble and allow God to have control of your life, 
um, that God's word is not reviled, which means it's, it's held up. It's looked at with respect. Um, so the very opposite of what the world would esteem, it, when we see it in actuality, it looks appealing. It is honoring to the Lord. Um, all right, so then the next is likewise. So again, keep rolling all this on. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. I read this and I was like, man. <laughs> so the women had all these things and then the young men is just be self-controlled. What's up with that? Um, again, there's this idea of this ongoing, you know, all of these things continue to be applied, not specifically husbands are not submitting to their husbands, you know. Um, that's obviously not what the God, God has for us in his word. Um, but all of these things continue. Uh, and obviously, we can all understand young men have a problem with self-control. Uh, immediately, a lot of this goes to idea of uh, sexual impurity, but that's not necessarily the case. It can be drunkenness, it can be anger, it can be uh, overzealousness for the wrong things, it can be pride. There's a million ways in which young men lack self-control. Um, and again, this is something that has been an ongoing theme for each group. We are all to be self-controlled. We are all to be marked by this steadfastness in the spirit. So young men need to just get themselves together, basically. All right. Show yourself in all respects. So again, this is Paul addressing Titus now. Titus, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. Um, so we might be looking at this and see, okay, you're to be a model of good works. This sounds a lot like what the circumcision party was kind of teaching. Like, oh, you have to, it's Jesus, plus you have to do all these other things. And that's the way a lot of times we can, a lot of people get confused on that. There's this idea of, well, I have to believe in Jesus, but then I also have to continue doing good works. If I don't do good works, God's not going to accept me. Uh, Kyle talked about this on Sunday. Um, that is an easy trap for people to fall into, that this idea of I still have to earn it. I still have to do something to earn it. Um, that's not what Paul's talking about. This idea of model good works uh, is what James esteem, uh, writes about, that without good works, there is no real change in your heart. That's a, just a natural outpouring. It doesn't it doesn't save us, it just confirms what we have said, what we believe. Uh, it's not enough just to profess with, I mean, it is enough just to profess with your mouth and have faith, but that results in a change in character. It results in a change of our uh, manner of living. So this sound doctrine, this healthy teaching, this healthy uh, teaching of God's word results in a healthy lifestyle that is honoring to the Lord. And in his teaching, he's to show integrity dignity and sound speech. Um, so be careful what you say. Be, uh, don't be overzealous. Don't be full of pride and arrogance. Be dignified. Have integrity. Do not say, do not, you know, act in a way that is negative towards what you're, you're teaching. Um, and he says, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. And the reason, again, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. This idea of having nothing evil to say about us is having nothing evil to report. It kind of reminds me of Daniel and the, um, with the, the wise men at the time. 
they looked and schemed and plotted to find a way to have Daniel's name tarnished before King Darius. They could find nothing. So the only thing they can come up with is we have to make it illegal for Daniel to pray to his God. Like how insane is that? That his character was that above, far above reproach that the only way they could ensnare him and make him look bad is to say, well, you can't pray anymore. I wish, I wish that were true of my life, and um, hopefully someday it will be. But that is the idea here, that Titus is supposed to be so, and this is, again, not perfection, because there is no perfection, but that his manner of living, his speech, is in such a way that is honoring to the Lord that his opponents have nothing evil to say about him. They're put to shame. Um, they have nothing that they can report. All right, so now we're going to move into a new realm. This isn't older men, younger men, younger women, older women. Uh, now we're going to talk about bond servants. Bond servants back then, it's actually slaves. They were slaves. Um, a bond servant or a slave at this time is very different from the racial slavery we know of today, of you know, American history. Uh, slavery back then, bond servanthood back then, was not racially based, it was debt based. Um, people who were indebted, the only way to work it off was to be in a slave for someone else. That's still not something that is uh, condoned. As we read this, Paul addresses these bond servants, these slaves, and he tells them how you should act in your circumstances in light of what God has done, in light of the grace that God has shown you. And this is not Paul saying slavery is a good thing. It's, it's Paul recognizing these are realities that people live with, that there are things in our lives, even now, there are things in our lives that we do not like, that are difficult, and we are not able to change our circumstances. Nevertheless, we are to honor the Lord with our lives. So this doesn't mean that Paul, telling slaves to be submissive to their own masters, doesn't mean Paul is saying this is a good thing, that there's slavery, but this is a reality that people are living with, and they, how do we respond to the difficulties of this life in light of the gospel? So Paul tells bondservants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, <clears throat> so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So this, this can be kind of a difficult idea to wrestle with. And the closest thing we have today is kind of, it's, again, because it's not a racially based or hateful based slavery system, would be very loosely to say an employer-employee relationship would be the closest thing most of us could really ascribe to this. Um, so there are things that will carry over, but it is different. Um, so bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. Uh, they are not to be argumentative. They are to be well-pleasing. This is the idea that as you are receiving instruction or being told to do something, we are not going to argue. We're not going to fight back about it. We will do it readily as unto the Lord. That, um, and then also not pilfering, this idea of stealing. Um, so as we think about our lives, when we are dealing with difficult bosses, difficult circumstances, difficult people, uh, we are to honor the Lord in that. We are not to be argumentative. We are to be well-pleasing. 
if it's a boss relationship, an employer-employee relationship, um, we're to be submissive. Now, again, this is in light of the gospel, in light of what God has done. If we're being told to do something that is against the gospel, we're not going to do that. We're not going to compromise God's word and what he has for us in a moral um, and spiritual way to be pleasing. That would be against God's word. We are to be submissive in the ways that we are able um, uh, and not pilfering. So I would imagine that this is a pretty common thing to kind of just take a little off the top or as you're running an errand to not give the exact right change back. Um, and these are things that can even happen today. Is, uh, I love the, this is an office episode, if you guys are familiar with it, uh, where the one character, Dwight, accuses the other character, Jim, of stealing company time because he's not really doing his job. And Jim turns the tables on him in a rather hilarious way and starts clocking every conversation he has, every trip to the bathroom, and Dwight just gets himself into a frenzy and can't do anything but just work, 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 work. It's, it's pretty funny. Um, but, and we, that's easy to laugh at, but there is a way in which many, many times People will just waste their time. That's a form of, you know, stealing from their employer. They're not doing what they ought to be doing. Um, it's easy, and especially, I think, in this area, and I'm not saying this of anyone in this church, but in this area, I do know it's really common. There's a lot of self-employed people where they're going to steal from the government, and this idea of stealing and, and taking what is not ours, not honoring um, the authority that God has placed over us, whether we like it or not. And in all of these things, as a slave does these things, uh, as they show all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So there's nothing lacking in the gospel. There's nothing that um, we could, there's no words we could bring to the gospel that would make it more glorious, more illustrious. But when we are faithfully responding to difficult circumstances in our life, to relationships, when our life is in a way that is honoring the word of God, it adorns the doctrine of God, our Savior. It adorns the gospel. So there is kind of almost a warning here that if we are not living this way, our lives are, are, are taking away from the gospel. They're, they're ruining the message of what God has done to the world around us because people are watching. People are evaluating us and they are saying, what's different? Why would I want to follow that? And when we, in these, all these areas, when we say no to self, when we live in self-controlled ways, when we humbly submit ourselves to the authority of those who are over us, even in difficult circumstances, it adorns the scriptures, it adorns the gospel, and it makes it look so appealing. It's like putting a jewel on it. And again, it's not that the gospel is lacking in any way, and yet there is something powerful that God has chosen to do by allowing us to be a light for the world, by allowing our lives to shine for him in a way that makes it look appealing to the world around us. So as we consider all these things, I would just kind of circle back to discipleship. If you have not discipled someone, if you have not been discipled by someone, that is something I would strongly recommend that you consider. Um, I think a lot of times we can think, but, well, I don't know. 
I think it may be easy for an older man or an older woman to say, well, no one's ever approached me and asked me to disciple them. So, you know, whatever, it's like, cool, I'm, I'm off the hook. I think there's an idea here of intentionality to pursue. If you're a younger man or a younger woman in this room, seek out a man or woman who you look at and you say, that's who I want to be in 20 years. That's who I want to be in 10 years or 40 years, whatever it may be. Uh, that's the way I want to follow Christ. Um, it will have a profound impact on your life. And these discipleship relationships can look many, many different ways. I've, seen, I've had people disciple me in a very casual way, and they probably didn't even know it just because I asked them questions. There are people I respect, and I observe their life. There are people that have very intentionally, on a weekly basis, instilled, the, excuse me, instilled themselves into my life in a way that really helped me to follow Christ and really helped me to see what matters in this life. So if you have not done those things, I would encourage you to do that, um, to seek out. If you don't feel like you are someone who can be discipling someone else, then you should probably be in the process of being discipled so that you, you would be able to do that. So you can build up the body in love um, so that in all these things, we may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your, your glorious word. I thank you for the amazing work that Jesus has done on the cross. Um, I thank you for the grace that you have just poured out on, on the lives of those who have surrendered to you, God. I just ask uh, for our church as a whole that you would um, today give a spark, a, a, a desire in an older man and women to seek out younger men and women who they may disciple, who they could pray for, who they could have relationships with to encourage them in the difficulties of life to follow you, God, to surrender to you, to give up their own passions and desires of selfishness and to follow you. And I pray for young men and women in this church that they would desire uh, to seek out those who can help them along the way. I just ask that you would bless this church, that you would pour out your gospel on us, that we would live in a way that is honoring to you, God, uh, and that we would be building each other up to love in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.